2: So we're gonna do something different today. This is usually the Broadway Nation podcast, but today it's two podcasts. It's also Broadway Nation and Dirty Moderate, and I'm thrilled to be joined today with not a guest, but a co-host, Adam Epstein. Hello.
1: David, thank you for having me. Hi, Broadway Nation folks. I am Adam Epstein, and I am the host of a podcast called Dirty Moderate with Adam Epstein, which is a political podcast. But David has brought me here. David, you gotta tell them why I'm here. Why is this Politico sitting next to you?
2: we're going to talk today about the collision of Broadway musicals and politics. Probably most people don't think of Broadway musicals as being particularly political, but I think that we view Broadway musicals over its 125-year history as, more often than not, most shows have been overwhelmingly political in many, many ways, and have often either overtly or subliminally advocated for what I would describe as democratic, humanist values and ideals, that some people might even view as progressive or liberal, but uh, it's more about social issues than it is about political issues in that regard.
1: I completely agree. And like you, David, I've taught a few classes on what I call the musical theater as American studies. My undergraduate works in political philosophy, although as a theater kid always, everyone should also know that David and I were lucky people to be part of the creation that was Hairspray the Musical, which of course we're going to talk about. I'm one of the original producers and David's theater is too. Fifth Avenue Theater where he was for, you're still there, right?
2: No, no. No, I stepped down three years ago, but I'm the emeritus uh, artistic director. So my heart will always be there to a certain extent. Yeah,
1: not to digress too much, but I was going to say that the American studies idea that you can't separate politics, history, culture, literature from anything in the United States. And in specific terms, when you're looking at culture, obviously people have done lots of research on film and TV, but theater is less used as a kind of site to contest the ideas. What it means to be an American, what it means to be othered, how does this American experiment include or not include people? And what have those groups that have historically been marginalized, what have those groups done to not just move the form forward, but to sort of make sure that a kind of progressive, for lack of a better word, message gets realized and exposed, right?
2: Absolutely. And that's where we come into so much alignment, because I teach a course at the University of Washington, which I bet you could just pick up and teach or vice versa, because that course is called the Broadway musical, How Immigrants, Jews, Queers, African Americans and other outcasts invented America's signature art form. And that's what this Broadway Nation podcast is about as well. What brings us together today is, as you said, our connection through the world premiere of Hairspray, which you were one of the lead producers on. And I had the great pleasure of being the producing artistic director at that time at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle, where the show had its world premiere. So both of us had the opportunity to see that show from the very beginning, from its earliest stages through to opening night on Broadway and beyond, which I will never forget. It was one of the most thrilling experiences of my life to be part of it and to see all that happen. I'll be doing several episodes about that because this summer marks the 20th anniversary of Hairspray.
1: Woo-hoo.
2: Yeah. This month, June, it opened at the Fifth Avenue Theater and then it opened on Broadway in August.
1: It's amazing, David. And I know you were there. I don't remember specifically where you were at the moment, but obviously Hairspray, the musical, was brainchild of the late, great Marco Lyon, whose idea it was and who mentored me into the producer I became and partnered with me. To start the development of it back in 99. And we sat there at that first preview, which I believe was May 30th, 2002. And Good Morning Baltimore didn't even have an overture yet. Remember, it just went boom, boom, boom before the little, you know.
3: Oh, 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 woke up today.
1: You just felt the entire audience consumed and subsumed by the magic of it from start to finish. And I remember Margot was habitually nervous and always worried about the shoe dropping or mini shoes dropping. And she said, oh, this is special. I said, Margot, this thing's a hit. We had been watching it grow in readings and seeing people's reactions, which, of course, readings aren't always reliable because it gets so insular. But that audience in Seattle, and just as the three weeks went on, it was astonishing. And by opening night, it was clear. Variety, I think, wrote, Hairspray is a big new, shiny hit, and it's headed for Broadway. I remember us at four in the morning reading the reviews online, and I was it Misha Berenson at the Seattle Times? She had a great line that, you know, of course it went to New York, and that press corps gets priority, but Misha called it a bye-bye birdie for the age
2: of irony. I thought that was really smart. Well, she's this very smart lady. Yeah. I want to tell your listeners
1: that, because I know these are people who love and study and adore theater in a the kind of context that it exists. In, so, yeah.
2: I too remember that first preview. I always describe it to people. I say, They screamed after the opening number, and then they screamed after every number afterwards. Every number in the show got this kind of reaction that you just don't hear. And then they just wouldn't leave the theater at the end. And of course, the next night was when 300 of the Seattle Men's Chorus were there. Of course, Harvey had performed with them a few years earlier. And I'll never forget, that's like something you see in a movie that you don't believe actually happens. The curtain call, which hadn't fully been staged yet, as I remember, the audience went nuts and the cast finished the curtain call and they left the stage and the audience would not leave the theater. Yes.
1: I was going to say, I remember the like the endless standing ovation, the endless applause. Like we were frozen in time watching this alchemy, right? It was like this beautiful alchemy.
2: And then Harvey, this is the part that seems like a movie. Harvey had to come back to the stage in his bathrobe. He'd already been to his dressing room, and gotten out right. of his costume. Right, 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 right. That's how long they applauded. Oh, I'll never forget it. But, you
1: know, let's jump on that point because here was the gay men's chorus in Seattle.
2: The largest gay chorus in the country still today.
1: Wow, I didn't know that. But I think that was also an amazing moment for the stuff you and I do. As You look at what Hairspray the musical meant in so many ways because it is that rare thing. And lovers of musicals know this. It's so hard to do, David, as you know. You did it for years and so did I. And if you can stumble upon that perfect synchronicity of a big, let's say, in this case, joyous
2: effervescent,
1: delightful, But but a perfect book musical in so many ways. Absolutely. Right? That had satire and social messaging, but it was done with such a smile that you left feeling so good and you left feeling hopeful by dint of the show and almost kind of subliminally by dint of the show's amazing message. That gay man's course is sitting there watching a John Waters musical, which, you know, John always said this. He was the Pope of Trash. You know, he was the sort of independent rogue who wasn't accepted in the mainstream. And here he was seeing one of his babies. Really, you could tell it was going to reach critical mass. And what that meant for Hairspray is so much more than just about racial equality. It really is about loving yourself self-acceptance, self-realization. It's very serious in that way. And I think that watching that was an emotional moment for people because they said this show, of course, no show is one thing. No show is just gay or Jewish or black or any of those things. But it was all those things. And it was profound. I think that's where what you and I have been fortunate to do when we talk about the social political history of musicals. is so interesting because we can take those moments and go, what does it mean? Of course it means it's a commercial moment and a joyous moment and a proud moment for your theater and it's adorable that Harvey's in his robe, but think about that. That gay men's of course was 2002. Hairspray was both of its time and ahead of its time, I always said.
2: And so- deals with so many issues, as you said. With issues of sizism, all kinds of body issues. I make my students analyze what the themes are of the musicals. And when it comes to Hairspray, where we arrive at usually is that everyone's beautiful. That's the message of Hairspray. Everyone is beautiful, no matter who they are, no matter what they're like, everyone is beautiful and deserves to be seen that way. It's so true. Which is a political statement.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Hairspray, and this is a big deal, of course, for the LGBTQ community, that Edna, John. John. Waters' instructions has to be played by a man because he did not want it to be a joke on fat women. It's not about having a fat woman. It was just to have a man be a mom. When the movie comes out in 1988, the original movie, but then the musical, you know, for purposes of this discussion, look at the expansive view of gender inversion or gender bending in the way in which that role was played without comment. Edna loves Wilbur timeless to me was a love song
0: styles keep a changing the world's rearranging but edna you're timeless to me hem lines are shorter a beer costs a quarter but time cannot take what comes free you're like a stinky old cheese babe just getting riper with age you're like a fatal disease babe but there's no cure so let this fever rage some folks can't stand it say time is abandoned but i take the opposite view cause when i need a lift time brings a gift another day with you Twister a waltz. It's all the same schmaltz with just a change in the scenery. You'll never be old hat. That's that. Ooh, you're timeless to me.
1: You know, of course there's audience members who still think they're kind of seeing kabuki theater or something they don't necessarily always appreciate it for that but there's so many people that would say I loved the edna Wilbur relationship without comment oh that's two men or a manager dr- no it's a mom and a dad almost renewing their vows kind of
2: absolutely
0: you're like a broken down Chevy all you need is a fresh coat of paint and Edna you got me going hot and heavy you're bat- no. But baby, boring you ain't Some folks don't get it But we never friend Cause we it. know that time with is our friend And it's plain to see <laughs> That you're stuck with me <laughs> Until the I better end And we got a kid Who's a the lid On the turn family tree, tree. You're timeless to me
2: Bringing down the house, too Stopping the show
0: You'll always be du jour Mon amour You're timeless to me
2: In every production of Hairspray since then, in every high school in America, a boy plays Edna. I know. And that's pretty revolutionary as well in the best kind of way, just because it breaks down all the barriers.
1: So amazing that all those students can do that. Remember how like, they used to have a Sunday New York Times piece? The Sunday before you're opening on a Thursday or whatever it was, they'd have an essay relating to something written by someone else, called John Waters wrote it for us. And the headline was, Finally, The Fat Girls Before the Footlights. And he then went into exactly what you're saying is how this musical has uh, a lot to say about gender being incredibly fluid. It has so much to say, obviously, about the hard fought and continuing battle of race and racial equality. And finally, like you said, everyone's beautiful. The idea of self-acceptance, but the genius of Hairspray, the musical, and David, you know this from being an aficionado and a historian, is what makes Hairspray easy to take in is that a girl... Baltimore girl, big girl, does two things. She wants to eat some breakfast and change the world. She integrates the Corny Collins dance show, which was basically like the Clark's American Bandstand, but it was based on the Buddy Dean show, which was real in Baltimore. All the cities then, Cleveland, Philly, they all had their versions of American Bandstand. So she integrated that, and she won the heart of the hunk in that kind of Cinderella-ish way. It's very difficult not to root for the show But as an audience member, and all the messages come baked in perfectly, I think, alchemized, you know, as an audience member, you're just like, wow, you got to root for Tom Meehan, the late Tom Meehan, who was one of our book writers. I used to do a lot of dinners with him in Seattle when I was out there for all those weeks. And I just would like to just absorb his information. He would say, you got to have a strong central character you love, Tevya, Dolly, Annie, Tracy, the King. I mean, if you go through the most successful musicals, it's more than just a hero or heroine, per se. It's the idea that you have to feel that you can get behind this person and you want to see them through, even if you already know it's going to happen. It's so true in other shows I've worked on, which were considerably less successful than Hairspray. We had that challenge, you know, that do we care enough about these people and are the songs elevating their trajectories enough for us to want to see a payoff? You know, there is something to that in the form. So obviously we're biased, but I think Hairspray does that in terms of the American musical comedy in the past 25 years. Name me one show, right? I really can say this. Name me one show that you think, and if I sound braggadocious, I don't mean to, but did it better. Not saying there aren't great ones. I mean, take Hamilton now and spring away. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the American musical in the realm of Annie by, by Birdie and, you know, the great classics. I don't know. Because Hairspray also, unlike the producers in Book of Mormon, both shows I love, it is not let's send everything up. It's actually real. They believe every word they're saying. And there isn't that weird distance. They're not going like, aren't we funny? We're making a musical, which the other musicals did expertly. But this was a celebration of beauty and of heart and of
2: humanity. It's satiric, but it's not ironic in any way, shape or form, which is what is such a revelation about it. It actually has the same heart that Annie has. Another great show. Of course, anti-racism is really a lot of what Hairspray is about. That culminates in a big song that, as you and I know, people were worried about, especially Margot Lyon, our leader in the whole thing, was very worried about whether the tone of the show, Hairspray, could contain that very serious, what we know now is an amazing song. There was a lot of contention between the writers who insisted it was going to work and Margot and some of the other producers who were very skeptical. And they reached an agreement that they would perform it at the first preview and see how it went. I was sitting next to Margot at that preview. I don't know where you were, but I was sitting with her too, so maybe maybe we were on the other side of her. Probably. Because she just was certain it wasn't going to work and it was going to bring the show down. Not that she didn't think it was a great song. She just didn't think it was going to work in the show. She was so certain about it. She actually had been advocating to get it out of the show prior to that. And she would be the first one to tell the story if she was still with us. I've heard her tell this story many times. Oh, yeah. As I said, they screamed after every number, and then we got to that, and the place went really quiet. And Mary Bond Davis, who was sensational, launches into that song.
3: There's a light In the darkness Though the night is black as my skin. There's a light burning bright, showing me the way. But I know where I've been.
2: And it builds and it builds and it builds. And as I remember it, when she finished, there was like this moment where nothing happened, there was just silence. And I think everybody was like, did they like it? Did they not like it? What's going to happen? And then it had the biggest reaction thus far of the night. Went crazy. And Bargo turned to us, I assume, and said, now we'll never get it out of the show.
1: <laughs> she definitely said it. Then she, you were there. Yes, and you definitely were there. She didn't say that to me, but I remember seeing the response. And that's an interesting thing in musicals. And obviously, anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you haven't seen Hairspray, you are banished from society. But if you think about it, you have the motormouth Maybell character, right? famously played by Ruth Brown in the original movie, but Mary Bond Davis in our production, the original Broadway production. In the show, it's written that she is so much like the grounding of it. You know, she has been through that door many times, she said. She said, get ready for a never-ending parade of ugly or stupid or whatever it is. And she is this font of wisdom. And I think it has so much heart. Jack O'Brien, the director, would always say, those motor mouth scenes are everything. They are the glue of the message, not just the civil rights message, the message of what the show is getting after. It was interesting because I know where I've been, which is always a showstopper, felt, I think, to Margot and some people like, are we just rolling out this sort of belty African American woman? Mark Shaman wrote in the Martin Short musical later on. Becomes a big black lady, stops the show. Uh, admittedly, it might feel a little cheap on the surface and a little bit manipulative, but with Hairspray, it works sensationally because it, it was such a moment where the show, which has such fantastic, I guess, velocity, you would call it, right, takes a breather and listens to the elder statesperson, in this case, Motormouth Maybell, who really has something to say.
3: A struggle. A struggle we have yet to win. Use that pride, pride in, our in our hearts to lift, lift us, us to tomorrow. Cause just to sit still would be a sin. I'm going, I'm
1: going. Just to sit still would be a sin. I know where I'd been. I also think that that number in the musical theater crafting world, not everything dramaturgically has to make perfect sense. I remember Jack Vertel had told Jack O'Brien at the end of You Can't Stop the Beat, and this relates to I know where i been too, that why is Harvey coming out of the can? It's really Tracy. And Jack goes, yeah, but the audience wants Harvey at that moment. Harvey coming out has more of a theatrical impact and effect. So you override You know what I mean? You don't have to connect every dot. It's not a science project. That doesn't mean you want to be incoherent dramatically. I know where I've been. On top of all the messaging and all that, it is important to have a ballad that stops the show. It's formulaic, but it's formulaic in the best sense. I thought it did the two things. It satisfied the appetite for that moment that the show needs and had so much to say and was totally, totally central and essential to the story.
2: And the contrast that Margot was worried about actually ended up working for it because it was so different than anything else that happened in the show. In a review, you want to have one serious song three quarters of the way through that grounds the rest of the show. And that functioned in this show, which was not a review, but still functioned in the programming of it in that same way.
1: I always make me think of Les Mis. I and mean, you have to have master of the house and beggar at the feast, otherwise you are gonna to go the to guillotine. My favorite show lame is you know, you just need the Harlequin, but you need the clown, you need the something. It's an inversion of that idea. So that's structurally a real, I think, a key ingredient of a musical.
2: Don't go away, Adam and I will be right back with more politics and musicals right after this quick break. hi this is David Armstrong and it's my great pleasure to welcome factor as a sponsor to Broadway nation this week this spring you can eat stress-free with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes you can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options including popular options like calorie smart keto protein plus or my personal choice vegan and veggie you can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50. 50 at FactYourMeals.com slash BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now! With
3: the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: So let's work our way backwards. Let's talk about some of these other political shows. Probably the most overtly political shows. Hamilton would be the first show on everybody's lips, of course, because it's still so very much with us. The biggest show of the 21st century, certainly. And then other shows that have politicians in them, 1776, which we're going to see on Broadway next year, which will be very interesting to see how that goes with an all-female cast. A non-male-identified cast, let's say that. And of course, there's "Of the I Sing Vita" is another one where you have politicians on the stage and is a very political show.
1: "Lame is" speaking of "Lame is," it's about the student revolutions, you know, not the French Revolution, the student revolutions, you know, post Napoleon.
2: Yeah, and it's about law and order. It's about the conflict between how closely do we hew to the letter of the law to the idea of crime and punishment. Glad they haven't made a musical out of that one. <laughs> yeah,
1: the, the, the Roshkolnikov Ballad" would be something to hear, right?
2: Exactly. But that's very much at the heart of the story. It's a human rights story and social justice. It's literally about social justice. Totally. What is it about musicals that you think make them, unlike film to a certain extent, More inclined to be political. I can name 50 Broadway musicals, and so can you, where the politics can clearly be identified even if the audience doesn't perceive them immediately.
1: It's a very good question. Well, I think that the, and this is my thesis that I, I teach in my class. I hope it answers your question. It's something I've thought about for a long time because I always thought politically when I was in the theater and now I'm doing politics. I think that you have to look at the musical in different periods, right, or in different tranches. And I'm not going to go back to Black Crook. I don't know about that. I'm not even going to go to shuffle along. I mean, let's just start from Oklahoma, although I include Showboat in this, too. Ultimately, the American musical, it's one of the only things America, not only things, but like jazz, it's inherently American. The musical, I think, made a case for American exceptionalism as we know it, the idea that we live in a unique experiment and that despite all the challenges that the country faces and that human nature faces, we are optimistic. We're cockeyed optimists. Something's coming, Something good. It's all of that up through, I would argue, like the late 60s, early 70s. Of course, listen, fiddlers got serious subject matter. Cabaret, I mean, I want to be clear to listeners, it's difficult to make a generalization. Hairspray is in that vein too. In a later era, you know, and the musical can do politics so well because it's such a unique art form. There's no other art form that can message to the point that it can no longer speak. It has to sing because all the world somehow gets, I don't know if I want to say resolved, but it's kind of worked on through song and dance. And that's also what makes it unique. But to continue my thesis, by the time of Company, which is back on Broadway now in a revival directed by Marian Elliott, we just lost even Sondheim in November, Vietnam, post-civil rights, Watergate. You know, America started to get a lot more cynical about its institutions, about its people, its politicians, its values. And I think Sondheim telegraphed that in the 70s. You start to see the musical get, I guess, for lack of a better word, more serious. People who prefer an older type of musical complain that it doesn't have the same hope. I think the musical then goes through a change and then comes back home in a weird sort of way with the producers, Hairspray, Mormon, most of the 21st century, not so much Hamilton, but you know what I mean? You can start going through the list and say, there's a return to... And you saw it, whether it was Hairspray or Book of Mormon or all the musical comedies, even Avenue Q. You know, people would say, oh, you feel like you're walking on air again when you leave a musical. Just like your grandparents. I think Ben Brantley said that about one of them. And it's kind of like, yeah, because the musical had gotten between the British pop opera and Sondheim pretty self-serious and on its sleeve.
2: And stopped dancing for a while, which was part of that same thing. And to give Margot Lyon, who we've been talking about, who we
1: both love so much, one of the reasons she wanted to do Hairspray, she wanted to bring dance back. Broadway hadn't danced, and that was part of her impetus. So you're absolutely right. The musical art form allows, like I said, us to work out our stuff in song and dance, and it elevates it. Plus, unlike film, film is literal. So film is like if a building blows up, you watch the building blow up. I don't mean that film has no metaphor, but you can do things, obviously, in a film that in stage is entirely left to metaphor. So I think within the realm of that imagination that creators of the fear have to do, that's what also makes it unique because you have to conjure something up without literally saying to an audience, you're in a restaurant that is a waiter. You know what I mean? It has to be a reverie or an alternate universe or its own
2: self-contained joyous world. One of the things musicals can do, as you just said, in terms of America's stuff, is dramatize this conflict between conservative and liberal values. Right. Or libertarian and communitarian values might be even a better way to say it. Oklahoma, I think, is one of those shows that is entirely about that. And yet most people don't get it because we no longer really understand what the conflict is between the farmers and the cowmen. But the show has a thesis statement right at the top of the second act. The farmer and the cowman must be friends.
0: The farmer and the cowman should be friends. Oh, the farmer and the cowman should be friends. One man likes to push a plow. The other likes to chase a cow. But that's no reason why they can't be
1: friends. Territory folks should stick together. Territory folks should all be pals. Cowboys dance with the farmers. Daughters farmers dance with the ranchers. Territory folks should stick together.
2: Territory folks should all be pals. What that is telling us is that, you know, the range wars were a real serious thing. Oh, that yeah. people in the 1940s understood what that was about. That's a big politics issue that is still with us today. It's a rural versus city issue, which is probably the heart of our political conflict right now. Conflict between people who live in urban areas and people who live in rural areas and their values that go with that. And Oklahoma represents that. What I find fascinating about it, and I think this is a major theme of the Broadway musical, is that healthy, strong, effective communities are vital to living. The musicals advocate for that, and they also tell us that we probably have to give up something to achieve it. We have to compromise to achieve it, which is a message I feel like we could all use right now in terms of how are we going to come together? How are the cowboys and the farmers going to be friends we're going to have to meet in the middle.
1: Well, I mean, David, you know, that's the raison d'etre, the mantra of what dirty moderate is. I'm a political independent, before your viewers gasp. I'm not out there <laughs> equally voting Democratic and Republican. But unlike other people, I think if there is someone in the state or local level who's a Republican that is not a lying Trump supporter, it's something I would consider. I've been voting Democratic because I used to be officially a Democrat for so long because I haven't felt there's been much of an alternative And to your point, that's sad, because the farmer and the cowman need to be friends. And whether we like it or not, that is going to have to be our biggest challenge in this populist moment. Musicals are also very populist, meaning of the people. But I was going to say that the farmer in Kalman is also ingenious because look at this. Oklahoma's in 1943. It is at the height of World War II. It's a massive hit when it opens at the St. James in March of 43. America is at war. This is the height of American exceptionalism. We've gone there to make sure Hitler doesn't conquer the world. One stop, Imperial Japan, too, of course. And it was probably the most noble war that's been fought that I can think of, insofar as wars are noble, that is. But what I'm trying to say is this was a rah-rah moment for America. But in the show, they are depicting this conflict. You know, it's not just who's going to take Lori to the box social. There's a lot going on. Oklahoma has recently become a state. It's impending statehood, having been Native American territory, which was a big problem because America had promised many of the tribes in the 1860s, 1870s that they would have their own land. And then we abrogated that treaty for like 100 years. So that was part of it. But the farmer-cowman is that urban-rural divide. And it also tells you how in American history, And this is stuff that I talk about in my podcast, but also just love, it fascinates me, that we have always had. Divisions in a country this large—I mean, we weren't always 320 million people, but we've always been many countries in one. This isn't new; it just isn't new. If you study American political history, there were famously, you know, Thaddeus Stevens—I think it was—was beaten with a cane on the Senate floor. They used to roughhouse. Jefferson and Adams were vicious to each other. I mean, newspapers—forget Fox News. Every local newspaper had a partisan bent, and the city versus country mouse type of motif was always there. You know, you city slickers, you don't understand us. And the beginning of banking and all that. That's what Gabe Jackson has ride. And what I'm trying to say is, is that we've always been trying to bridge the divide. And I think musicals are very successful, at least trying to create a world, this is the exceptionalist thesis a little bit, where we can kind of unite to the extent uniting as possible, disparate parts, differences, ideological and otherwise, and we can kind of make those come together. But it does tell a story about who we are, Who we are, we are at a breaking point in our society, but it's not as if we've never been torn. I mean, 700,000 plus soldiers were killed in a civil war here. So we got to be in perspective. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be working to bridge these divides, which is what I do, because we got to fight like hell for democracy because it's all in the line.
2: Yeah, and the metaphor of these shows, I think, subliminally allows us to experience it, to go there, to see the possibilities of that. Have these shows had a positive effect on America? It's hard to prove a negative, but how much worse would we be off if we didn't have these shows is the way you'd have to look at that because obviously we have a tremendous amount of divide in the country. But I think the shows have made it better.
1: But I thought about this today, David, and I don't know that Seattle's a good example, or LA, or, you know, Blue Cities or whatever. But we send tours out, and they play to the capacity crowds in quote-unquote red states with arguably liberal or left-wing messages because I think that's where they unite. I think people go and say, even if people are just treating it as escapism, which many people are, they're working jobs, they're stressed, they're kids. You know, the last thing they're going there to do is be a sociologist. You know what I mean? Or to think about it maybe in the way we are. But- Somehow, when Hairspray's first round back in the day, we first started going to those smaller cities, there wasn't a seat to be had in Utah and Montana and all those places. They were happy because they aren't necessarily politicizing everything. It's just that we're in a climate that does. Do you know what I mean? They go and they go, yeah, of course I agree with that. I like it. But you look at the state, look at the voting patterns and go, but you voted... But, you know, in every red state, there are a lot of blue voters. So when you say the red state, you know, you can't just like eliminate a swath of people who are not putting pieces of shit in power. Excuse my language. You know, they're not sitting there trying to destroy democracy. There are people who put honorable Republicans in, but also people who voted against Mitch McConnell and against Jim Jordan and against all these folks who are in what I think is the Trump cult. And that are trapped in, I say trapped, they live in Kentucky and they live in Idaho and they live in, well, they live in rural Washington.
2: And in most of those places, you have the same urban-rural divide happening. We have it here in Washington State. West of the mountains is where all the people are, and east of the mountains is where all the farms are, and they're constantly fighting with one another. If we believe in subliminal marketing, then I think we have to believe in the subliminal messages of musical theater also. Both of them are effective, and both of them have had an impact on people. You know, you can't dismiss one and say the other one is real. No,
1: I was saying that in one of my earlier little answers here today. I need- When a young kid goes to see Hairspray, and it's Pride Month, right, and they could be wrestling with their gender identity or their sexuality or both or whatever, and they see Hairspray, you know, for two and a half hours, you don't want that world to end. That's a world you want to live in. And that subliminally may help them find themselves and discover how to be themselves it may help them announce who they are and be accepted you know i saw something on the news recently of this kind of exurban oklahoma city town i don't know the name of it and the kid had put a pride flag up i think it might have been a story from last year but they were re-showing it but he put a pride flag up and the whole neighborhood cheered him on there was like one guy that made a homophobic comment the neighborhood all said hey, man, you know get out of here we're proud of this kid. And, and so change does happen. It is subliminal. It is often very slow, but it has a way of creeping in. And then now we have the forces of reaction trying to fight back against it. But that's the natural reaction, right? You move something forward and something resists. I mean, that's kind of science. You know, every reaction has a reaction.
2: Absolutely. Another show that I think the metaphor is fascinating because it's a musical comedy that most people would not think of as being political is Guys and Dolls. Oh yes. And yet what is the conflict in Guys and Dolls? It's between the religious right and the most liberal, libertine people of all time. Just like in Oklahoma, it ends in a marriage like comedies are supposed to. It ends in a marriage with a woman from the religious right, as far right as you can go in that world, the Salvation Army, and a inveterate gambler who represents big city values being married. Right. That's right. And the weddings in Oklahoma, everybody in Oklahoma is a cow man marrying a farm woman. Every single couple in that show does that same thing. And that's, as I often say to my students, that's not a mistake, that's on purpose. The writers did that on purpose, whether they knew what they were doing or it was in the back of their mind, but they have made this marriage to tell you what the show's about.
1: That's a great point about Guys and Dolls. Of course I knew it, but until you said it, I'm like, I'm learning, I'm your student here. What I think is so important about what you just said that I love, and I think this is amazing, is that the writers did do it on purpose. Why? Because you can't live in your own silo, in your own sphere, in your own little bubble, as far too many people do. You know, I don't. I'm out there talking to everybody, but people are living in their bubble. And what I mean by that is the proverbial libertine, confederate gambler doesn't want to talk to the Salvation Army ambassador because it's, oh my God, those are my values and we drink and party and we're liberal and they're uptight and they're Christian and all the stuff, but in real life, you know, you see it in culture and musical does it so well. People do come together from different backgrounds. And the idea of them coming together and overcoming their differences, yeah, it's a happy ending, but you know, it's also fundamental to America. One of the things that's really depressing to me is the group of people or idea that America now is the worst country that ever exists on the face of the earth. You know, it's the greatest oppressor. It just isn't true. It isn't true. I ask you to read the history of the Portuguese and Spanish empires, go back and read about the Ming dynasty. It just isn't true. Do we have our problems? Yeah. Do we have a different promise we are meant to keep? Yeah, but we're working at it. You know, we're 245. 250 years old my point in saying this is that we as american people and maybe it's mythology but i see it acted out in life and it's being depicted here in guys and dolls in a lot of places you overcome it you know you do marry someone you never thought you were like because ultimately you're both americans but you're both people and it sounds kind of pollyannish but it's true and i think that's what the american musical is saying the farmer and the cowman can come together everything doesn't have to be a fault line and i just miss the idea Yeah, I'm proud to be an American. I'm not going to let bigots and racists and fear mongers and xenophobes take that flag away from me. You shouldn't either, meaning anybody listening. That's our flag. That's not their flag. I'm not saying you have to go out in your pickup truck and wave a flag, but I'm saying just because MAGA decided to soil the meaning of that flag doesn't mean the flag doesn't have good meaning. It doesn't mean that there are, as Lincoln said, better angels among
2: us. That's interesting because I did a production of Hair at the Fifth Avenue Theater, actually that same year that Hairspray premiered. It was one of my favorite shows I've ever done. We actually did it twice because it was so successful. But there was a moment where a big flag came in and they sing that song about the flag and we had put a peace symbol and stuff on it. And then for the finale, we actually brought the flag back in again. It was a big full stage flag. I remember someone complaining to me, coming and say, I don't think you should have that flag on the stage. It represents everything that's bad about America. And I said, why can't the left claim the flag as representing all the good things that are about America? You've made that decision yourself to see the flag that way. That's very interesting that you bring that up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that you were channeling those thoughts exactly, because you're right. Who's the arbiter of what that represents? That's the whole point is the ideals that we all collectively, if we don't hold, we should. They are not owned by a Democrat or Republican. They're not owned by the Trump right or the right. And they're not owned by the left. They're owned by everybody. That's a great point. And I'm glad that you stuck to your guns.
2: Well, and of course, Hair, like so many of these shows, is a show that has very sharp critiques about america about our political system about the way we screw things up all the time and yet it ends with a song called let the sunshine and sort of a desperate plea it's not really a joyous song at the end of hair it's like how long are we going to keep doing this when are we going to see the light but that's a very american very positive statement which is why i thought the flag should come soon after it
1: you're right It's two things I say on my podcast. It's a both things are true. You know, I'm politically homeless because I'm trying to figure out how to put all these threads together. Maybe I'll never figure it out in a sense that you can hold competing ideas. You know, they say the sign of a first-class intellect is holding two different ideas in your head at once, and that does not seem to be working very well in our country right now. But I was going to say that I think that both things are true. You can be proud of the flag and know that we are working toward it, and you can also be an enduring and hopefully insightful but relentless critic of America to do better. You can do both those things. I don't like that they're put in separate camps. James Baldwin famously said, I love America so much, I will perpetually criticize her because 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 I want her to be better. Frederick Douglass was a patriot. He said the Constitution was everything, and that slave owners soiled it. Martin Luther King did the same thing. They believed in the American creed, but yes, they were great critics and great conscientious objectors to the injustice that's also
2: here. Before we end, let's talk about Annie. I love it. I do too. It was one of the first shows I saw when I moved to New York. I remember going and getting standing room to see that show and applauding so hard. I had a watch on that flew off my hand. And <laughs> did you see Dorothy Ladd? I saw the original cast. It was right after it opened. And I never saw that watch again. I could never find it. I searched the theater, but I didn't care. I loved the show that much. It was worth it. But what's fascinating about Annie is how political it is. I describe the story as being how little orphan Annie convinces Roosevelt to bring in the New Deal. She's the generator for the New Deal happening. And her action is to turn the arch-conservative Daddy Warbucks into somebody who supports the New Deal.
1: I know the depression's depressing. Hey, Carol! Windows are minus their dressing
3: The children don't grin The Santas are thin
1: And I've heard a
0: terrible rumor No goodwill, goodwill, no no cheer, cheer
2: But we'll get a new deal for Christmas this year that's the main story of Annie. It's so true. And Annie, of
1: course, unfortunately, in many productions, sort of curdles into caricature and gets overplayed because it is such a great score and you can't beat it. But when you think about Annie, is there any smarter or scathing or, God, more incisive political commentary than Hooverville? I mean, that song is brilliant.
2: Exactly. We'd like to thank you, Herbert Hoover. Is political satire at its best.
1: Today we're living in a shadow. At its best, to a great tune, people in a shantytown saying, you know, we've had enough. And then Annie, right, our lovable protagonist again, being the impetus for great change, great villains. Miss Hannigan is just perfection. She's sort of something out of like Dickens, but then she's also pure showbiz. You know, what are they doing in Easy Street? Even though they're looking to steal... It's like an American dream number. They have stars in their eyes for not being down and out, for actually making it. It's amazing. Move them feet to easy street. That's where we're going to be. That's the
2: aspiration in the American musical. It's the grifter side of the American dream, where you think you can get there, you can cut the corners... Absolutely. ...and not worry about the damage that you might do.
1: Absolutely. We have a big history of con artists in this country. Unfortunately, we've just lived through one. But I also think, too, it's that American urge that... Do or die need for success. That's sort of ingrained in us. That's built into us. And I want to quote, I love the line in Karis. I think it's the most American line ever written in a musical. I don't know if I've told you this, but you put it in your class. Billy Bigelow. How does and I'll go out and make it, steal it or take it or die. Because if he's not going to be able to be successful, he's nothing in America. That's such an amazing line. I'll go out and make it, steal it or take it. Because there's no way I can be left behind. I think that left behind, sadly, also has turned sour for people. And I think that's a lot of that anger, that populist anger, that feeling of you know national betrayal helped led, led, led lead to Trump. It's not justification, but I think it informs their disillusionment.
2: I agree. That is an amazing moment. Of course, he kills himself right afterwards.
1: Yes, he does. <laughs>
2: because he can't achieve it. Right. That's what I mean. He has a complete reversal of fortune after that, and he's got nowhere to go. Yeah,
1: nowhere to go. And that's exactly right.
2: Any other musicals that you find particularly political or you want to bring out the politics of? I think more than ever, we're
1: in that moment. I mean, this is not the oncoming of the Third Reich, but I think Cabaret and Isherwood's Berlin stories. When I teach Cabaret, I have them read some of the Berlin stories because you're watching the insidiousness of authoritarianism, the way that it creeps in. Little by little to destroy a society that has lost its cohesiveness and turns to a madman, a strongman, a totalitarian in Hitler's case. And I think Cabaret does an amazing job, you know, by the time it's in the second act and Sally's at the party, I think. And by that point, Ernst has the armband. You know, he's he's in it. Hitler's biggest supporters were university students. So, you know, when I see in America... And nothing is the same. History rhymes, Mark Twain apparently said, not repeats. When I see mob thinking, and again, the right has been in power, but the left, gave us Stalin and communism too. It can happen. When I see mob thinking, I always worry about how fervent people's beliefs, that don't want to change their mind, they're like frothing at the mouth, like wolves at the door, always terrifies me. Because little by little, they come to accept erosions of their freedom, and then those erosions lead to complete and total annihilation of people's, well, in Hitler's case, annihilation of Jews and a lot of people, but also elimination, I should say, of democracy. I think Cabaret is more salient now than ever. It's always been timeless. I know there's been a brilliant production with Eddie Redmayne over in London that I hope comes here. But I think people need to see because one of our two major political parties is aiding and abetting authoritarianism. It is creeping in. And it's probably the case they're going to win back Congress, certainly the House in November, because of just where we're at. Not Biden's fault, not the Democrats fault, but some of the worst people get in power and they'll do and say what they need to do to be in power. It doesn't make it any less nefarious, but it makes it
2: real menacing. And of course, the message or the action that we see in Cabaret is people just ignoring it and justifying it and pretending it's not so bad. Right.
1: How many people have said to you through the Trump years, well, you know, I don't like him. I think he's gross and I think he's horrible, whatever, but I like his policies. Okay. Well, number one, you can't separate those two things. And what are the policies? And I can't name any. What did he do? I mean, other than like, he put kids in cages, he cut taxes, his tariffs are a disaster, pulling out of the TPP. I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but like so many bad policies decisions were made. And they go, but I like his policies. What policies? I think they are attracted to his strongman aura. I do. People want that sometimes.
2: And another musical where you see that exact same phenomenon happen is probably the most popular musical of all time. It's The Sound of Music, where Max and Elsa just say, I don't really like him, but maybe it'll work out. Maybe it'll be good for the country.
1: And people say, well, maybe he won't be a madman. And by the way, that's an important distinction in contemporary politics, because people always say, oh, you know, you're romanticizing the old Republican Party to me or others. I said, I'm not romanticizing anything. I'm a realist in politics. I am telling you that the party of Dwight Eisenhower, Ulysses S. Grant, Teddy Roosevelt, Abe Lincoln, and I'm no Reagan fan, but Reagan, that is not the party that's there now. So you can say what you want. And yes, there was a roadmap or a runway, you might say a glide path toward that through Trump, but it just isn't the same thing. If John McCain had been elected president as much as I voted for Obama, we would have been okay. A second Trump term for President DeSantis, we won't be okay. There's a huge difference. So I want people to know that I'm not saying go out and become uh, a Republican, but you should become a dirty moderate. <laughs> And you should listen to my Dirty Moderate podcast. I have everybody on.
2: I do listen to it. I enjoy it very much. I'm not quite as far in the moderate camp as you are, especially when it comes to corporate issues and money and those kinds of things. I, I have some challenges there in the way that's affected society. The whole downsizing corporate mentality of nothing is important except for profit. I always like
1: to say there's nothing worse than crony capitalism because it ruins the idea of the free market. And by the way, I am always for smart and sane capitalism. That's how I describe myself. But the problem is in capitalism, the problem is the way people corrupt it and decide to not give a hoot about anybody but themselves. And that's not what it's supposed to be, because there is a rising tide that lifts all boats in what the free market can do, but not when it's fully rigged against people being able to be in that
2: boat. And I think that there was also a time, or at least there are examples of sort of mission driven capitalism or holistic capitalism, where yes, you want to profit, but you also want to keep everybody employed, where it was about the community of the corporation, not just the shareholders part of the corporation. Of
1: course, it's so true. You have to care about the community, but also nothing is on its own in the way people analyze economics or or the way capitalism works. The government and the free market always have a pod to do, a dance going on, right? So... Government subsidies help give Elon Musk what he wanted. They fund big agribusiness. They fund corporate welfare. They bailed out Detroit. You know, the auto bailout was a huge success. They would have gone under. You know, we bailed out the banks. There's a lot of dispute on how we should have done it, but the government did it. Government bailed people out, gave a major lifeline during COVID to a lot of people because it was a catastrophe. There's always a government presence. I love the idea that a public and a private partnership can be done, but because I'm market-driven and I don't want to sound too idealistic, I just wish sometimes the Democrats could consider a free market approach and not reflexively legislate everything through government because that doesn't always work. The road to hell can be paved with good intentions. But am I for the social safety net? Of course. Am I am I pragmatic about policies? Yeah, like I love. Joe Biden's COVID relief bill, and I love the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I thought those were two great things, and I was really proud that we accomplished in this country. You know, Build Back Better bill, not so much. You know, I think it needs work, and there's elements of it I like, but just to give you an idea. So I just wish people could. Think about it. And and if government can do it, if government saves someone's life, by all means, it should do it. Do you know what I mean? But if it doesn't, and there are more innovative ways that will, in the long run, work better, save money, but help people, I wish that that balance could be struck a little more.
2: Again, it's this all or nothing thinking that it has to be all one way. It's why we get into these problems why we don't have national health care doesn't make any sense to me. It would be good for business.
1: And I'm for that. I lived in England. Not only does it work, businesses don't have to provide health insurance.
2: I was interacting with some people the other day about Broadway ticket prices and discussing why they're as high as they are. I said, well, you have to reduce cost if you're going to reduce ticket prices because there are not giant margins. The big hit shows make lots of money and every other show struggles. That's the reality of it. But if the producers didn't have to pay for health insurance, the budgets would drop substantially because it's all labor
1: all labor i know and that's what people don't understand too Theater producing taught me about good business leadership. You know, I was always a very accessible, nice, actor-friendly producer, because why? I wasn't just interested in the capital. I was interested in the human capital and what we could do. And if they were happy, the show was better and the business was better. Not just cynically, it just was a better way to work and to engage people and listen, make decisions that not everyone's going to agree with every decision. But when you don't come off as so adversarial about everything, that sets a tone. And I don't think it's weak or socialistic or idealistic to say producers, young producers out there. It should teach you about balance between making money and quality of life for the people who work for you. I think that that taught me a lot. And David, that's your mantra too. You know, you're very humanistic. You care about people. You took care of your people and that matters. And you had a successful theater as a result of
2: it. I think one of the reasons you learned that in that business is because your product is your people. Yeah. The only thing you have is the show on the stage. And the show on the stage is a hundred people showing up every night to do that job. That's right. In every capacity. Right. How do you merge theater and politics now in your life? There have been major forces in your life. Theater will never go away. Describe where you are now and how those things work together.
1: Well, what's very interesting, I'll tell you, this is how I see it working together. I was a kid performer, and I always did on-camera stuff, and I always wanted my own voice. And I loved being a producer in certain ways because you're creating and you're a boss, but it's not about you. It's about the show. So I think one thing I'm able to do with having a voice now is is be me. You know, I'm now the talent. I get to be that guy. And I don't mean it egotistically. It's just I'm much more fulfilled because I think that's where I'm strongest. I think that's where I'm best used. I'm taking a lot of the skills I used as a producer. I don't have to deal with the hassles I don't want to deal with. That's not what I want to do with my life. I'm more creative. So I think I'm exercising the creative aspects, which I think had been kind of stunted, I guess, or I guess put in their place, rightfully so, while I was a producer. So now I can explore me and what I have to say and I don't know maybe I'll do something else in the theater I don't think I'll be an actor but maybe I would do something else that isn't
2: producing I don't know that's so interesting because I think I'm in somewhat the same place I now still produce I produce a show for both of us we're now the stars of our show
1: and by the way I have an actual team of two great producers on Dirty Mark that are wonderful that do such an amazing job and I always shout out to them but yeah you're the star I'm the star and it's on us and it's our voice
2: I avoided being the talent for 40 years so it's interesting you're doing it. You're a real voice. Broadway Nation's amazing.
1: I'm so glad to be on here doing a joint podcast, a simulcast, I guess we call it.
2: Thank you so much. This has been delightful. We could go on for hours, I know. I know. Well,
1: have me back and I'll have you on, vice versa. But I love that Broadway Nation and Dirty Moderate have partnered up, of course, just to talk to you, David. You just are a Broadway baby in every way. But Hairspray Turns 20, something that forever changed both of our lives and we'll spend the summer commemorating,
2: right? Absolutely. I'm excited about the summer. There's one memory after another. They're going to be rolling in. Yeah, fantastic.
1: Well, thanks again, David. It was great to talk.
2: Thank you, Adam. Good to talk to you. Our celebration of 20 years of hairspray will continue here on Broadway Nation as the summer rolls on, including episodes with Hairspray's Tony Award winning songwriters Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, Hairspray's original choreographer Jerry Mitchell, and much, much more. Can't stop. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.